Welcome to Air Crew Interview. I'm Mike Young, your host, and this is part one of our interview with Mark Sanker. In this episode, Mark chats about flying the Jaguar, the Harrier GR3, and Harrier GR5. Includes some brilliant stories from his time flying the Harrier GR3 over Belize and also displaying the Harrier GR5 over Rome. If you enjoy our videos and podcasts and would like to support the channel, you can do this by helping us out monthly at patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview, which allows us to continue to create new content every month and grow as a channel. Thank you and enjoy. So Mark, when did you first become interested in aviation? From the, my earliest age, I, I was... Um I've always been an aviation sort of enthusiast. Uh, it stems from the fact that my dad was a pilot in the Air Force. Um, he flew meteors and vampires in the 50s. And then he was working at uh, Filton Airfield near Bristol for Bristol Sidley Air- Aircraft Company. So I grew up literally under the flight path of um, Concorde and the Vulcan cameras, all sorts of interest in airplanes. And, um, you know, we used to go to air shows. Uh, during the summer uh, and I used to buy the airfix kits when I went on holiday so <laughs> yeah I was, uh, I've always been an enthusiast you could say. Right from the early age. Yes. So what year did you join the REF and could you tell us some, you went somewhere very interesting for your training, could you tell us about this as well? Yeah I applied uh, straight after I'd completed my A-levels and I um, joined the Air Force in the summer of 81. I did my officer training at Cranwell and then because I hadn't actually flown as a pilot, they sent me to RAF Swinderby to do the Flying Selection Squadron, which is a short uh, course on the Chipmunk, which I, I got on pretty well with, um, really enjoyed it, I sort of uh, really embraced that, that the course. And interestingly, at the end of that, they were looking to select pilots to go out to the United States, uh, to Texas, to be uh, part of the, what they then call the Euro-NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training Scheme. And it, was, uh, it, had, it had morphed from what the uh, Luftwaffe training system was, because they trained in the, in the US. And it had, it had brought in students and uh, instructors from other NATO air forces. And they were, in, they were picking about four or five uh, uh, students a year to go and do that, that course, rather than do the, the RAF uh, basic training course. So, and I was fortunate enough to get selected. So I, w- I went out to Texas for a year in 82. What did you fly over there? So the basic training is on the T-37, um, similar in size to the uh, RAF's Jet Provost, which is the aircraft that they used at the time, but twin engine, uh, side-by-side seating, is I- ideal as a basic trainer. Mm-hmm. And then once you've done uh, the, that, that part of the course, you go on to the advanced part of the course, which is on the, on the T-38 Talon, which was, <laughs> which was crazy. Uh, I remember my first trip sitting in the front, the instructor was in the back, we lined up on the end of the runway at Shepherd and we got airborne and we did a reheat climb, a burner climb to 30,000 feet and I sort of looked over my shoulder at the airfield and I thought well uh, might as well just enjoy this flight because I'm not going to be able to fly this aeroplane. <laughs> I will not be capable of flying this so enjoy it. Um, but anyway somehow I got through the course and, uh, uh, and went from there. Yeah, so how long was your training in the US for? Uh, 13 months. And did you learn all the basic stuff you would in the RAF if you were trained here? Uh, I'll say yes. The RAF at the time said no. (laughs) (laughs) They said that the weather was too good in in Texas and that I wouldn't be exposed to the sort of uh, climate uh, that that we have here in Europe. Mm -hmm. And uh, that that they'd have to uh, 
teach me all over again. Uh, in fact, I came back from that, that course with my pilot's wings. So to answer your question, yeah, effectively it was the same, uh, the same uh, syllabus. Uh, but I then did a, a short um, conversion course onto the Hawk, uh, which involved quite a lot of low flying in Europe, which I have to say was actually easier than flying Texas, because if you've ever been to Texas, it's entirely flat. Mm -hmm. And the, the lakes that are on the maps aren't, aren't there because they, they've actually dried up. So if you, know, you try to use those as a, as a navigation point, you get, you get there, they're not there. You know, so it's all heading in time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, whereas you fly around uh, the UK and it's all lovely hills and woods and rivers and bridges. <laughs> and yeah, it's lots of features. <laughs> So before we move on to your first frontline aircraft, which did you prefer flying, the Hawk or the T-38, and which do you feel was better to move on to frontline? Probably a difficult one. Yeah, the T-38 was a wonderful aeroplane. It, it was, I mean, it's still in service now, and it, it, was, it was old when I was flying it, but the cockpit was lovely, and the, the instrumentation was fantastic. Obviously, it had the performance, um, but it's pretty difficult to beat the Hawk. The Hawk is a real sports car. You can throw that thing around. It's very forgiving. It's uh, just a wonderful airplane to fly. So I think the Hawk gets it. Yeah, yeah. it is a wonderful yeah. aircraft. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. So then, what was your first frontline aircraft and what were your first thoughts of the jet? So I, I did this conversion course onto the Hawk and then I went to tactical weapons unit training in, in Devon at Chivna. And from the end of that course, you get selected for your first frontline aircraft. And I have to say, I, don't, I didn't feel I did very well on the course. Okay. I didn't enjoy it um, <laughs> for, for various reasons. And I was kind of thinking I would probably uh, end up on, on the Tornado uh, from, from that, or possibly the F4. Uh, but I have, there happened to be a, an instructor on the course who sort of... Uh, sort of rooted for me and he got me a posting to the Jaguar mm -hmm. so to get a, a single seat fast jet from Chivna was amazing mm -hmm. um, and I went up to Lossy Mouth did the OCU and then I joined 54 Squadron mm -hmm. at Coltishall and uh, I absolutely loved it it was the, the, the squadron was fantastic the, the, the guys I worked with were amazing uh, we deployed a couple of times a year to Denmark um, to, uh, in support of NATO, uh, the NATO forces. Uh, it was a wonderful part of the world to live, but the airplane was, was great. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I know you did an interview a couple of years back with uh, Bob Marston, he was talking about the, the Jaguar and what a wonderful airplane it is, but it's desperately un underpowered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just that. needed more, more mm -hmm. thrust. Yeah. Uh, but as an airplane to fly, it was, it was great. Yeah. It was lovely, yeah. So Mark, can you talk us through some of your flying training on the Jaguar before you came, I guess, combat ready? Yes, uh, so uh, the, the OCU uh, was at Lossiemouth, uh, which is in the middle of a wonderful training area, probably the, the, the best flying area in the world, actually. And um, you're going from uh, the Hawk, which is a very simple aeroplane. You know, anyone that's looked in the cockpit, there, there, there's no fancy head-up display or, or navigation system. And you're going to an aeroplane that's got a, an inertial navigation system, it's got a moving map, it's got uh, complex weapons, uh, switchery, uh, head-up display. So there's all that to learn. Uh, and then, of course, you're actually getting into an aeroplane that doesn't have another seat. <laughs> it doesn't sound like much, but psychologically, that, that's quite, no, that's no, quite no. a big <laughs> thing, is to, is to sign for an aeroplane and climb into the cockpit 
knowing that there isn't, even though, though you know there's no instructor in the back, but psychologically, when you know there's another seat, I don't know, it feels different. Mm -hmm, of course, yeah. yeah. So we know it was underpowered, but what was it like having reheat for the first time? Well, it wasn't the first time because I flew the T-38. Oh, of course, yes, I did have reheat. Yeah, and the, the T-38 did have mm -hmm. power. It was a much lighter aeroplane mm -hmm. uh, and, and there was nothing hanging off the T-38, so, so it went very fast. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, you, you, needed, you needed the reheat in the Jaguar. Mm -hmm. there, was, there were a couple of times when I was doing air-to-air -air refueling uh, with drop tanks where we were filling to full. I think we were going across the, the Atlantic. And the airplane was so heavy that I actually had to have one of the engines in reheat really? to keep plugged into the tanker. So I was probably throwing more out the back than was coming in the front, but <laughs> that, that, that's how underpowered it was. Wow, it really was, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So did you ever manage to drop uh, live weapons on the Jaguar? I the only place that you could drop live weapons in the UK was at uh, Garvey Island in Scotland, and uh, we did do uh, at least one drop a thousand pound retard bombs there, yeah. What was that like? A bit of a non-event, really. Really, you don't feel it coming off those You things? do feel it coming, coming off. Um, it's, it's the extra weight you're carrying, which is the big thing, really. Um, you don't see the weapons detonate, so you just release them and then so that's listen for a score. <laughs> <laughs> Seems some, uh, for someone like me, it'll be a massive event, but obviously... Well, it is an event. Psychologically, yeah. again, it's an event. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of actual piloting, it probably isn't, but in terms of the fact you're actually walking out to an airplane that's got green uh, munitions on with, with yellow bands, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there's something a bit, <laughs> a bit special about that. So let's talk a bit about 54 Squadron. What was the actual role of the squadron, and did you enjoy your time there? So 54, uh, their main role uh, at the time, of course, the Cold War was still going on. Uh, our job was to deploy to Denmark and carry out what they called um, TASMO, Tactical Air Support of Maritime Operations. So essentially supporting um, any maritime ops that were going on, but also to, to go up against uh, any um, enemy shipping. Right. So of course, Denmark's strate strategically quite an important area it's the en entrance into the into the Baltic mm -hmm. um, so so all of our uh, sorties were around Denmark and, and and Baltic and we and we also had a few other targets further further afield in East Germany as it was then yeah. um, so that was that was interesting we operated from Tierstrup mm -hmm. on the East Coast and uh, yeah like I said before 54 was a fantastic squadron uh, we had, but there was 41 squadron, 54 and 6 were at uh, Coldshaw at the time, and great camaraderie, great banter. Yeah, work hard, play hard. <laughs> so, how long did you spend on the Jaguar, and how many hours did you get? I was there for just one tour, three years, and that's a very good question on the hours. Without looking at my logbook, I can't remember. I didn't, I didn't do a thousand hours. Uh, probably seven or eight hundred. But it was an enjoyable aircraft overall to fly. Yeah, uh, fantastic. And in, in fact, I was, I was hoping to stay on the Jaguar. My, my sort of plan career-wise was to go and do the weapons instructor course and stay on, on the aircraft. But that wasn't to be. <laughs> <laughs>uh, three years. I was coming towards the end of my, my three-year time at, uh, on 54 Squadron. I had requested, I put it, each year you get to put in a request, three requests actually, for where you'd like to go, 
And I, my first request was always for the, uh, the weapons instructor course on the Jaguar uh, or a, an exchange tour to the US, something like that, or the Harrier. I think that was the third choice that I put down there, or the second choice. Um, and I was coming to the end of my tour of duty and I went to see my boss one day and I said, oh, I still haven't heard from the poster. Do you, do you know what's going on? And, and he said, oh, haven't you heard? And I said, no. He said, well, you're going to be a, a flying instructor, a QFI. Mm-hmm. not a QWI, which is not really what I wanted no. to do. And my heart sank a bit, and I said, right, okay. I said, is there any way out of that? He said, no, they're desperate for QFIs. They, don't, they want some people from the front line. Uh, so I arranged to, with him, I said, is it possible that you could get me um, as a QFI on the Hawk? So I could go back and fly the Hawk. And he said, yes. So my posting was to, to Scampton, to Central Flying School, to learn to be a QFI. And it was going to start, I think, at the first, uh, beginning of January in 88 and just before um, Christmas I think it was uh, there was a a fatal accident in the Harrier Force Um, sadly two Harrier GR3s collided at Otterburn Range over the target one pilot was um, uh, Dave Sunderland who I'd been a student with at Chivna knew really well lovely chap and the other guy also knew was John Carver who's American exchange pilot Mm. on three squadron so all of a sudden, the frontline Harrier force needed some pilots. And I kind of heard through the grapevine that they were looking for people from other frontline duties. And uh, my name went forward into the hat. I'd always, you know, the Harrier had always been one of those airplanes I'd dreamt of flying, never really thought I'd get a chance to. And I, was, I flew my last trip on, on the Jaguar and, I, and on the Thursday and on the Monday, I started the Shawbury helicopter uh, leading course, just a short wow, course that, that you do. Yeah, it was that, it was that quick. Wow. Yeah. So you mentioned there, yeah. Can you talk us through some of your ground training on the GR3? Because obviously it's a lot uh, different aircraft coming from the Jag. Yeah, they, they sent us to Shawbury to do uh, four or five trips in the Gazelle helicopter just to get used to, to hovering and to going to small confined spaces, which was a lot of fun. And then you, you go to the, the Harrier OCU, uh, which at the time um, was at Wittering, sort of the home of the Harrier. Mm-hmm. And the OCU, the Operational Conversion Unit, is split into two um, flights. There's the um, basic flight, where they teach you just to fly the aeroplane. And then there's the advanced flight, where you learn to use it as a, as a you know, use its operational co- capabilities. So low flying and the navigation, formation, uh, tactical formation flying, um, and a lot of range work. And of course, this aeroplane is so different from any other aircraft the actual the basic flying side is complex because there are so many different ways you can take off and land and we needed to learn them all so that you know that takes several months uh, of training at, at Wittering and, and the airfield there's designed for VSTOL operations with several vertical landing pads and several short strips in various different directions plus a long very long runway and a long parallel taxiway which you can also use as a runway uh, and a grass runway to add it all. <laughs> so, so basic, you do that, and then once you've completed that part, um, and that's probably where most of the the failures came. I think yeah. people that couldn't get through the course would probably fail at that stage because mm-hmm. once you'd learned to fly the airplane, then you went on to learn how to use it. Mm-hmm. And was there a simulator back in them times? Was it like you know that you see today with the moving maps and the you know moving cockpit, or was it quite? Uh, we did, yeah, we had a simulator. Well, we had actually in the, in the hangar right behind where the uh, OCU 
admin buildings and, and crew room was, was a cockpit not unlike this, just sitting on the floor. And we used to use this as a, as a kind of a systems uh, procedural trainer. Mm -hmm. So we sit in there with, with a checklist and learn all the checklist items. But we, we did have um, a simulator at Wittering. Um, it wasn't the fancy simulators you see now, because there was no... There was no digital uh, graphics in those days, um, so it was uh, an actual map with a camera moving across the map, which was projected onto the screen in front of the in front of the cockpit. So uh, fairly basic stuff, but mm -hmm. it worked. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing you probably will. But can you remember your first trip in a Harrier? Actually, my first trip in a Harrier was when I was flying the Jaguar, and oh, right, I okay. was at Lossy Mouth, and a detachment from the OCU came up to Lossy Mouth, and they had the two-seater. And they were saying, anyone who wants to go for a trip. Mm -hmm. So I do very clearly remember that. Mm -hmm. And we went off and flew around uh, Scotland. We were, we were acting as the aggressor for two other Harriers. That mm -hmm. were, students were on the course. And we came back and we broke into the circuit. And because there, was no, there were no vertical landing pads at Lossiemouth, so we, just, we, we flew at a normal circuit, but then we just got slower and slower and slower and slower until we stopped uh, hovering over, and we were hovering over the threshold, and I just remember looking down at the golf course on the right-hand side and <laughs> thinking, this is absolutely crazy. Wow. Uh, and then we did a short rolling landing. Awesome. Yeah. So what kind of flying training would you conduct in the Harrier? Were you in the back or the front as well? Uh, all in the front. All in the front. Uh, but part of it was obviously in the two-seater with an instructor, but an awful lot of the course you would be in the single-seater. And like I said, you, the, ba the basic stuff was um, a lot of stuff with instructor learning how to fly different circuits, uh, vertical landings, vertical takeoffs, short, short takeoffs, short landings, um, those sorts of things. The, the, the advanced side uh, of, of, of the flying was a lot of pairs, tactical formation flying, um, usually around whales, uh, some air combat training, um, and a lot of work at the range. Mm -hmm. uh, we used to use Whole Beach Range, which is ten minutes down the road from from Wittering. Mm -hmm. So a lot of range work. And we have to talk about the first time you actually hovered the aircraft. That must have been quite memorable. Yes, <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> it was very memorable. You do a. Uh, you, you're learning to fly the aeroplane, and eventually you get to a point where they they clearly go do your first hover, and you taxi out. The aeroplane doesn't have much fuel in it, so you don't do a a full tactical sortie. Um, you just uh, literally just do the the hovering. So there's just enough fuel to do a couple of hovers, and you you taxi out to the the concrete pad, and the instructor is on a is on a hand uh, on a on a radio field radio uh, with and he's standing next to the pad, so he sort of talks you through it um, and gives you some tips. But basically, you just you do one ver I think you do one vertical takeoff into the hover. Just get positioned and then come down and do one vertical landing. <laughs> Were the nerves going? Was the heart pumping? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So we have to talk a bit, a bit about the actual role of the GR3. What was it designed for and what was the role when you flew it? So the GR3, purely a ground attack aeroplane, and it was, it, its job was to go against um, ground, ground forces, light armour, tanks, uh, troops, that sort of thing. And when I went to uh, Three Squadron, the Cold War was still going on. There was the East German border. Um, you know, the Soviet Union was still very much the threat to us. And so all of our training was geared towards the possible 
threat of them coming across the border. And we weren't very far from the, from the East German border. Mm -hmm. um, so it was all tactical low flying. Uh, the main weapon was the uh, BL-755 cluster bomb. We carried four of those, which was, was ide ideally designed to go against armor, light armor. Uh, and the aircraft's got two guns. We could also carry the retard 1,000 pound bomb. And as they'd proved in the Falklands, uh, we could also carry the laser guided bombs. Mm -hmm. um, although we didn't do that role very, very much. So how did the GR3 handle? Was it a, a maneuverable aircraft? Very maneuverable. Yeah, it's very maneuverable. It's, uh, it's a proper little sports car. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, lots of power, obviously. Uh, very maneuverable. Very fast roll rate. Um, easy to sustain energy in a, in a turning fight. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was a very maneuverable aeroplane. So how did it do in DACT against the types of the time? <laughs> well, when I said it was manoeuvrable, it, 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 but it, remember, this thing's designed yeah. to drop bombs. It's not a, it's not a fighter jet. We did, uh, we did do some DACT, um, and I can, I can very clearly remember going to Deci Mamano in Sardinia to do some uh, DACT with F-15s. Oh. Um, yeah, that hurt. <laughs> yeah, you know, those airplanes are designed for air-to-air -air combat, and the, of course the F-16 as well. Um, so it, it, it was it was it was fun mm -hmm. to fly, but it wasn't designed for that. So how effective is it? I get this right. Is it vif viffing? Viffing. Did that actually work in you know real terms? Well, I don't know that it would. Uh, the problem the problem with every fighter pilot will tell you is that the energy is is key in any sort of a fight. You, they, you need to maintain your energy, and of course once you start turning and and, and pulling. Uh, G, you're going to start bleeding energy, and the, the the fighter jets like the Typhoon and the F-16, they just push the throttle forward and they maintain that energy and they can sustain high G turns. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with an airplane like this is is it doesn't have that kind of thrust, so you are going to bleed off the energy as you start doing these high G turns. Um, one of the things they found, of course, with the with this airplane is, is if you go slow speed, you can now start to use the nozzles. And as if, you, if you vector the thrust, you can pitch the nose yeah. quite quickly. But you can only do it in a slow speed fight when you've kind of lost most of your energy. <laughs> so there are times when it could work, <laughs> but for most fighter pilots, they don't want to be there. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be slow speed. They want to maintain their energy. Of course. Yeah. So what squadron were you based with and where were you based? So I finished the OCU in the summer of 1988 and I was posted to 3 Squadron at RAF Gütersloh in central Germany um, as a part of the NATO forces there. Uh, at that time we had uh, 4 Squadron that was uh, um, what they call 4AC Squadron, Army Corporation, so they did a lot of uh, reconnaissance work uh, and we were 3 Fighter Squadron. Um, and as I said, the, the role then, prim primary role for us was if we had to go into operations, we would deploy from Guttersloe to uh, field sites that had already been pre-surveyed. Some of those were at the Senalaga training uh, area, which was a little further south from Guttersloe. Mm -hmm. And we would operate from roads, we would operate from uh, metal strips that were laid by the Royal Engineers, or grass, we could even operate from grass. And um, so we practiced that role three times a year. Mm -hmm. So I was at Guttersloe and I did a uh, what turned out to be five years there. Mm -hmm. 
And many of our viewers, because I posted it up recently, the yeah. picture of you flying the is it you flying the rocket? Yes. Where was that at? Because that looked really cool. So, I, so I, as I said, I got to Kitzislow in the summer of '88, and we had a commitment at that time to uh, have a Harrier. Harriers based in in Belize, which is formerly British Honduras, and the country of Belize, with its independence, was was threatened occasionally by Guatemala that sat on their, on their western border. And so that, that we had a flight of four Harriers there. And so we would, we would um, cycle pilots through uh, Belize and you'd, you'd do a six week um, deployment there. And mine happens to start at Christmas. So I literally flew out on, I think, Christmas Eve. And uh, I did six weeks uh, through the beginning of January into February. So those rockets were, so, so to answer the question, there were a number of ranges in Belize and we had far fewer restrictions than you do in the UK and yeah. Europe because there, there, no, not many people live there, it's very sparsely populated. And uh, that was uh, a range called New River Lagoon. And uh, I got to fire four full pods of operational pods of snare rocket. Oh, I bet that was really So cool. that, that, was, yeah. <laughs> that was fantastic, yeah. So Mark, what kind of weapon fits would the GR3 have and could you take off and land in the hover in all fits? So the operational wartime fit for the GR3 would typically be uh, four uh, BL755s uh, with drop tanks and um, guns, 30mm uh, cannon. Uh, with, with, the, with that operational weight, um, you, can't, you can't vertically take off. The, the aeroplane is designed to do a short takeoff, utilising a road or off of grass or um, a metal uh, strip, and then to vertically land at the end of the sortie. So at the end of the sortie, when you've burnt uh, all the fuel and uh, released the weapons, you're much lighter. So the aeroplane is then designed to do a vertical landing at the mm -hmm. end of the sortie. So if you didn't you know, burn off all your fuel or drop all your weapons, I'm guessing you'd have to do a dump somewhere? Yeah, there'd be two options. Normally you had a dump target that was uh, planned so that if you didn't get to the primary target, there was a secondary target. And uh, if, you, if you were overweight, you've got two options. You can either get rid of that weight somehow, but if you're carrying weapons, you can't just arbitrarily drop them anywhere. Mm -hmm. So we'd have to, you'd have to divert to somewhere that had a runway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, how long did you spend on the GR3 and do you have a memorable story you can share, which I'm sure you have many anyway? <laughs> the GR, so the, the GR3 was coming to the end of its time. I was quite fortunate. We, I did a year on the squadron flying that aeroplane and then the, the brand new Harrier 2 uh, GR5 came into service and the OCU got the first aircraft and we started then going back to Wittering to do the conversion course which I believe was around uh, 1989. Memorable stories in the GR3. I, I suppose um, that the flying in Belize was, was particularly exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, very, few, very few rules, uh, lots of operational low flying, uh, amazing scenery. You know, you're flying over the second largest barrier reef in the world, incredible um, stuff. We did a bit of work uh, looking for drug smuggling that goes on there because a lot of the drugs that go, in, go north oh, really? to, to the US come through Belize so we're always on the lookout for, for ships and boats that maybe shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. Then there was the, the threat from Guatemala, there was the, a lot of, um, a lot of uh, live weapons that we could drop so there was the rockets that I fired, there were, I dropped a lot of thousand pound bombs, fired the guns a lot so 
So uh, yeah, that was that was quite memorable. I always say like, oh, I think if GoPros were around in them times, how amazing uh, it would be. I know. I, I used to carry a camera in my G suit, a little point and shoot, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but then, yeah, Mark, you mentioned yeah the squadron moved on to the GR5. Could you tell us? what the difference was from the GR3? Was it a completely different aircraft or was it just systems upgrades? A bit of both really. It's um, a completely different airplane in that it's built around the Pegasus engine. So that bit's the same. Yeah. You know, it, that's, that's, all, that's the key to the Harrier. That's what makes it so special. Uh, we got a, a, a bigger engine with more thrust. Uh, this, this airplane has a, a hydromechanical fuel control unit that controls the fuel flow into the engine. With the GR5, we now had a had digital. Wow. Yeah. We've got digital engine control system. So a little black box sitting on top of the en engine, that's, that sorts out all of the fueling, mm -hmm. a bit like fuel injection in a car. Mm -hmm. But the airframe's completely different. You've now got a bigger wing, it's carbon fibre, you can carry more stores, you've got two dedicated Sidewinder pylons, um, it carries more fuel. The cockpit is much, much bigger. It's effectively an F-18 style cockpit designed by the same people. Um, you've got uh, the um, upfront controller for, for programming radios and weapons and a much, a much more modern cockpit. Mm -hmm. Something that, that's not a million miles away from the Typhoon and the F-35. So it did have uh, glass uh, screens in there? So you had glass. Th this, this airplane is all knobs and dials. This is a hunter. Yeah, this is like, this is meteor. Yeah. That's a good uh, yeah. You know, I think of this airplane as if you imagine if we're talking about cars, this is like a, a Morgan sports car. You know, it's brilliant. It's a great little little uh, sports car. The GR5 that then became sort of the GR7 GR9, that's like a, a Aston Martin. Yeah. You know, it, it's just a a leap. Mm -hmm. And would the GR5 be carrying the same weapons at this time, or did it have uh, advanced um, weapons uh, for the new airframe? There were there were some other uh, weapons uh, in the pipeline uh, because obviously the aircraft had, had a lot more ca capability. But what's interesting is you've got to remember that right at the time we started getting the GR5, the whole political landscape of the world changed because the Soviet Union collapsed, the Berlin Wall came down, there was no uh, Warsaw Pact threat anymore and just when we were about to sort of take a breather and say oh you know we can relax a bit now we had Gulf War One <laughs> you know and suddenly we've, we've got Jaguar squadrons over there and they're not flying low level anymore anymore they're flying medium level they're doing high dive bombing onto targets which mm -hmm. is something we didn't really do much of yeah so in the space of two or three years we had to completely change our mode of operation that must have been quite tough it was very tough. Mm. It was very tough, and people working quite hard, and you know, thinking on their feet about w w how is the future going to look because we didn't really know. Yeah, um, we just knew that we weren't going to be flying around low level in Germany mm -hmm. anymore. We we're going to be doing other kinds of things that we needed a different kind of capability. So, um, for example, the retard thousand pound bomb that you need to drop at low level, we're now dropping it from medium level in a dive, we don't need the retarding tail on it, so we, you know, we need a bomb that can do more from height. So at that time we got the, the new uh, multifunction bomb fuse, which, which was far more reliable and gave us more, more modes. We were carrying more um, precision-guided precision munitions like uh, laser-guided bombs. 
And we also pushed uh, to get the CRV-7, the Canadian rocket, as a replacement for, the, for SNAP. Um, so, so yeah, you know, it, it was changing times. And as a pilot, um, did you, how did you feel about changing your, complete, your, your tactics completely? Did you enjoy going from low level to you know, medium height? The one, the one type of flying that I miss from the military is low flying. So, you know, I absolutely adored it. It's something you can't do that in civili the civilian yeah. world. You know, it's, it's so unique and I love doing it. But, um, you know, they have to do a job. So uh, you sort of embrace whatever job you have to do and how you're going to do it. And the, the, the challenge was finding out how to do these new profiles. Mm -hmm. And we would utilise our American exchange mm -hmm. pilots who had flown the airplane for the Marines and they flew it in a slightly different way. Uh, so we learned a lot from them and um, we did flag exercises. I remember doing a red flag just after Gulf War One, where we did, were doing a lot more medium level uh, 20 degree dive. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so we were doing some different stuff then, mm -hmm. learning how to do it. <laughs> exactly. So how did the GR5 handle? Was it a completely different beast from the GR3? Yeah, you got more performance. Mm -hmm. uh, I said I said it's got more thrust, but the wing, because the wing is bigger and it, it, it it's producing lift down to sort of 50 knots, 30 to 50 knots, whereas below 100 knots in this airplane, you're not really getting any lift from the wing. Yeah. So you're relying on thrust, whereas, whereas the, the GR, you could come into the hover, you're still getting some lift from the wing. Yeah. So you had more performance in the hover. The view from the cockpit's so much better, so it's easier to position yourself you know, landing in a field site or on a ship. It also had a slightly better uh, flight control system, so it was a bit more stable as well in, okay. in, in the VSTOL regime, as I remember. But the, the same rules apply. Um, I know <coughs> from the interview you did with Bob Marsden, he talked about a thing called intake momentum drag, where if you, if you get side slip over the nose coming to the hover, the airplane can actually roll, and it can roll uncontrollably, yeah. and that still applied with, with the GR5. Mm -hmm. So... Nothing changed with that respect. Mm -hmm. You still had the throttle and the nozzle lever. You know, the cockpit effectively was mm -hmm. the same, just a bit more yeah. shiny. <laughs> and did uh, the upgrades uh, for the GR5 reflect in its performance in DACT? Oh, same, 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 same applies. In fact, if anything, probably slightly worse because it was a bit slower. Oh, was it really? Well, because, because it's got the, this bigger wing, um, it's, it's a lot thicker. You know, it, it didn't... The, this airplane, you could, you could just get it supersonic. What, straight and level? Or? No, you'd probably have to be in a bit of a dive with no tanks on it. Uh -huh. um, plenty of Harrier pilots will tell you they've been supersonic in it, but, but a GR5? Well, I don't think so. <laughs> no. But then you were lucky enough to become the display pilot in the GR5. How did this happen? Uh, yeah, right place, right time, really. Um, the, at that time, you had a, a display pilot at Wittering who did all of the air shows in the UK, and then we had a display pilot in, in, in Germany that did the European show. So it wasn't an, as extensive a display season. There weren't as many shows, but I went to some really interesting places. Yeah, uh, The first display I did was at a place called Zeitenstetten in Austria, which was a grass strip um, that had a flying club and they did a lot of gliding there and they had this air show. And because I was the only jet there, we took two Harriers and parked them right outside the clubhouse wow. in, in Austria, in the foothills of the Alps. And I was 
terrified. I was, you know, I was a flight lieutenant. I'd just been given control of these two brand new airplanes, and I'm parking them in a field in Austria. And I'm thinking, you know, who's going to look after these? But they actually, <laughs> we had impressed on them the fact that, that we needed to have them guarded, and they had, they had supplied uh, a couple of or a, a platoon of, of Austrian troops. To, <laughs> With, with assault rifles to basically guard it 24 hours a day. So, so there, was no, there was no problem there, but uh, yeah. that, that was a, a great experience. Yes. So how did you go about um, creating a display? Was it all up to you or was there many pilots and other people involved? Well, you, there's no point reinventing the wheel. You know, people go to air shows to see the Harrier hover. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, the, the main part of the display is going is to be VSTOL. You know, if you, you go to see an F-16, you want to see it in reheat, you want to see it doing loops, but if you go to see a Harry, you want to see it hovering, you want to see it nodding to the crowd, you want to see it doing a 360 and to go backwards. Yeah. So there's, there's your show right there. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then, then you just kind of massage that to, to make it your own. Mm -hmm. But you are coached by the previous display pilot or someone that's done the display. So I, I had a, my flight commander actually had a, a lot of experience displaying the, the GR3. And so, um, you know, we talked about the display, tried a few things, uh, put something together, and then I just, it was just a case of practicing it. Wow. And so where did you actually display it? Because I think you've displayed all over Europe, haven't you? Yeah, so, so I did that first one was at Zeitenstedt, and I did one in, this was really interesting, in, in Rome. Rome? Yeah, like in Rome. <laughs> <laughs> There's an airfield in Rome called uh, Urbe, and again, it's a private, uh, or, you know, it's a, it's a little... Um, uh, like a private flying airfield. Uh, it's got a, sh a short runway, and they invited us to display there. But it's quite built up, so you know I felt kind of bad when, when, when I was doing the show, because the, the airplane makes a lot of noise, as you know. And I was hovering very close to, to some houses, so I felt you know, quite uncomfortable doing it, but what an amazing experience. You know, a stone's throw from the Vatican, <laughs> <This is horrible laughs> you know, flying around in a Harrier. <laughs> so that, that was good, um, I did, uh, one, I did one down in Salon in um, Provence, quite a few in France. Mm -hmm. Oh, I did a lot in Belgium, Mosela mm -hmm. uh, and some of, some, of the, um, some of those shows, usually small grass airfields. Mm -hmm. And was this a full-time role or were you operational on the squadron as well? Oh no, fully operational, this is part-time, it was a, right. week, a weekend thing. Mm -hmm. So I would go away on a Friday uh, and be back either Sunday or Monday morning and straight into my day job. So it was, yeah. So it must have been busy for you then? It was busy, but I was single, you know, no other commitments. I wasn't doing it every weekend. No, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the guy at Wittering was, was away every weekend and he was doing two or three displays a weekend. Wow. I was just going somewhere for the weekend. It was like a bit of a holiday. Why <laughs> <laughs> <My> not? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I have just remembered one that I did do that was very interesting. Uh, the Czechoslovakian Air Force, as it was then, had an air show um, and they invited us to it and so we we agreed but they didn't have they didn't have much money so we they could just about afford to pay for the fuel but they and they had a, but they had us barracks on on the station but we we flew across the border so we flew and you've got to remember this is the the Soviet Union had only recently collapsed within a year before this and the, and, the, and the wall had come down. So we were going into no man's land. We were going across a border. We had very few maps. And we had no idea what the airspace was. And we flew across to a place called Zatek in northern Czechoslovakia, which is a MiG-29 squadron. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. So we, I, I took 
so I always took a spare aircraft, and on this occasion, uh, it was my it was the station commander uh, that flew the spare. So I was taking him with me because uh, it was quite a, a big event, and we landed at this MiG twenty nine squadron. And of course, the Czechoslovakian Air Force has got great affinity with the RAF because they fought during the Second World War, you know, in the Battle of Britain, and so. Uh, they just welcomed us with, with open arms, and you know, you know, fighter pilots are the same the world over. Yeah. So we were really looked after, and um, I did. Then the show was very interesting because it was a, a off the airfield at a, a relief landing ground that was basically an, another grass strip. But when I landed there, there were Heinz helicopters, and there were all kinds of bits of Soviet kit that I'd only ever seen in photographs before. And now I was sitting in them and. Uh, in fact, I got flown in, a, in an MI8 helicopter and we were flying over Soviet SAM sites and things that we'd only, like I said, only seen those in photos before. Mm-hmm. So it was quite an amazing experience. A yeah. great weekend. Sounds like you had a great time on the GR5. Yeah, it was so good. How long did you spend on it? So, so I did a sort of about a year and a half on the GR3 and then I did about um, uh, t- three years on the GR5. Mm-hmm. And then it, around that time it was starting to get the upgrade to GR7 which made it night attack capable. Yeah. Before that, you've seen the picture. The GR5 has got a, a smooth nose. The GR7 had a forward-looking infrared on the front, and the cockpit was modified uh, for night flying. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, was coming, I came to the end of my time on the, on the Harrier, um, or, or, sorry, on the 3 Squadron, about the time the GR7 was starting to come into service. Right. And that was in 92. 